So why don't we open our Bibles to Matthew 4 and 12 to 25. That's the good news. I have a Bible I can speak out of. That's the only reason I can follow that up. Matthew 4, 12 to 25. This morning as we continue to make our way through this great gospel that Matthew has written for us, we're right on the precipice of the Sermon on the Mount, the first big block of teaching by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. You may not know this, but the entire Gospel is really structured on and centers around five major sermons preached by Jesus. Gives us uh, some uh, grounds to say that God had one son and he made him a preacher. And, um, but just before the, the Sermon on the Mount here, we have the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read that now. Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the Word of God. Why don't we bow and pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word so that each of us this morning might read and experience the beginning of Your Son's public ministry. And it's our prayer this morning as we have our Bibles open in front of us that you would help us by your Spirit, not only to understand, but to be transformed by your Word. We pray that you would fill our minds and our hearts so that we would live differently in light of your Word. And because we need your help to do this, we cannot do it on our own. We ask that you would, in fact, help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. It was hearts to follow after Christ as his disciples, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have this um, very distinct memory from when I was a child. It was my birthday, and my parents took me to Toys R Us. 
It may, it may have been a children's palace, very Toys R Us-esque back in the day. But I can remember I would go to the, the toy store for my birthday, and I'd be able to pick out one or two toys for my birthday. And on this particular occasion, I remember walking past the, the book area. What child chooses a book on his birthday? But for some reason, there was, there was a book there on display that caught my eye. And the, the cover was a very sort of simplistic drawing of a man's face, and his head was in the shape of a house. Now, you hear me say that, and you think to yourself, that explains absolutely everything. He's been six since he was a kid. But the title of the book was A Light in the Attic, written by Shel Silverstein. It's a collection of poems. And I just was so attracted to the cover, I had my parents buy it for me. And I went home, and I could barely read, but I remember devouring these short little poems that Silverstein wrote. And in this particular collection, the, the poem that the book was uh, titled after was A Light in the Attic. And I want to read that to you. So here we go. Shel Silverstein quoted from a Baptist pulpit. Let's go. <laughs> the poem goes like this. There's a light on in the attic, though the house is dark and shuttered. I can see a flicker and flutter, and I know what it's about. There's a light on in the attic. I can see it from the outside. And I know you're on the inside looking out. Very simple poem. The imagery of light and dark. You have two figures, one in the attic and one outside, and they're looking at one another. Now, I wasn't a very deep thinker when I was a child, but as I read this poem today, I, I can't stop but wonder and wonder if maybe the person in the attic is looking out with this sort of sense of invitation to come in. Come into the light. Come be with me where I am. Now, the passage that we've just read together in Matthew's Gospel is framed entirely around the themes of light and darkness. The entire world, we know from Scripture, is in darkness, and Jesus is the light of the world. And we take Silverstein's imagery and we sense that Jesus, as he comes bursting onto the scene, he turns the light on in the attic, as it were, the darkest and dingiest place of the house, and he's unmistakable. As we look in the face of Christ in this text in front of us, what we find is not only the look of invitation, but the command of invitation that you and I would leave the darkness and enter into His light. I just want to praise our musicians today that even in the selection of the songs, you cut all the themes of light and darkness to set the table for what we have to say this morning. The question that all of us have to ask ourselves today is, do I want to come into the light? Have I come into the light? And if I haven't come into the light, will I come into the light? What does it even mean to come into the light? When Matthew writes of Jesus here in this passage, he's telling us that Jesus is the light that shines. And he does this through his preaching, calling, and healing. He shines through his preaching, his calling, and his healing. And here is really what Matthew's after this morning. If all of his gospel is about the king and his kingdom, he's explaining to us today what happens when the king finally unveils himself to the world. A floodlight goes off in the midst of deep and profound darkness. The structure of the passage is pretty simple. We're going to look at four points. First of all, the light shines then the light preaches, the light calls, and the light heals. Jesus is the light of the world. 
shines through his preaching, calling, and healing. I want you to look first with me at this idea that the light shines, verses 12 to 16. We're right on the heels of Jesus being baptized and tempted in the wilderness. He is the Savior, the King, without sin. And verse 12 tells us that when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Don't you love that if you're one of John the Baptist's followers, how that's just included almost as a throwaway? John got locked up and Jesus went in to Galilee. And it's in Galilee that Jesus begins his public ministry. Now I want you to think with me for a moment, just indulge me in a little bit of imagination. Imagine that Jesus were to have hired sort of a PR consultant, you know, sort of a campaign manager to help him out with his ministry. Maybe he looked into the future and he called one of our church growth gurus and said, what do I do? I'm looking to start a ministry. How should I begin? And of course, the person on the other end of the line would have said, well, you know, Jesus, I understand that you are, as Matthew's told us, the one who's born king of the Jews. I understand that you're the son of Abraham, son of David, the very God of very God, the true son of God, declared so at your baptism. I know that you've come to bring the kingdom of heaven. I know that you come to rule the world with truth and grace. But if I could maybe just make a little bit of a suggestion on how you should reveal yourself to the world, the last place you should go is dumpy old Galilee. I mean, let's just consider your options. Why not Bethlehem? After all, when presidential candidates announce their candidacy, so often they go to their place of origin, their place of birth. Go to Bethlehem. People will get those Davidic tones ringing in their ears almost right away. The glory days of ancient Israel. Here is the king. It'll be unmistakable. We'll have a huge PR campaign. People will flock to you in droves. And if Bethlehem doesn't suit you, well then why don't we just try Jerusalem? After all, everybody knows that the major cities, the metropolitan areas, that's where you should start a ministry. That's where the wealthy people are. That's where the spiritually sensitive people are. That's the best place to go. That's where the influencers live. If you really want to build your ministry, Jesus, then you should start in Jerusalem. Jesus says, no thank you. I'll take Galilee. The question is, why? Why would Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the one who comes to rule with truth and grace, begin in Galilee? If you look at the passage, you'll see that Jesus begins in Galilee because the Old Testament foretells that he'll begin in Galilee. Your Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 9. Once again, Matthew will have nothing to do with any sort of conception of Jesus that is framed out minus a grounding in Scripture. God's word is God's word. He quotes from Isaiah 9. I bet you're familiar with Isaiah 9. You might not be able to quote it off the top of your head, but Isaiah 9 is where we get, for to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. But at the beginning of that passage in Isaiah 9, we read that there will no more be gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This area of Zebulun and Naphtali, this area of Galilee of the Gentiles, is the very first place that's invaded by Assyria during the exile. It's as if to say that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to come not to the place of political supremacy, not to the place of his birth, but Jesus is going to begin his ministry where it's most needed. 
Here's the light of the world, and he chooses to unveil himself in the darkest area of Israel. On them, a light has dawned. That's good news for each and every one of us this morning. It tells us that none of us are too far gone. None of us are more too steeped in darkness to be ministered to by Jesus. Jesus chooses the place that's darkest. And it's there that he begins his ministry. The light shines, verses 12 through 16. But how does it shine? Secondly, we see the light shines by the light preaching, verse 17. Imagine that. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach. Now stop for a moment. I want you to notice that the very first word of the Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate God, the very first word that Jesus has for the world is repent. That might catch you by surprise, doesn't it? Repent. That's priority number one for the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew's Gospel. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? Chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist in his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message verbatim. You can tell how much Jesus was concerned about being thrown into prison like John. How essential, how important, how life and death serious must this message be for Jesus to proclaim it first in the face of the threat of imprisonment and opposition. Repent, he says, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come. It's time to repent. The very same message that was essential to prepare the way for Jesus is essential now that Jesus has come. The message hasn't changed. The demand is for you and for me. Repent. If you'll allow me to be a little bit redundant, even as Matthew's redundant in the writing of his gospel, we said last time that we talked about repentance, that repentance consists of sight of sin. Every human being, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, must see their own personal sin, that we've offended a holy God. Number two, sorrow for sin. We must be sorrowful over the things that we've done in offense to our holy God and Creator. Three, confession of sin. We have to admit that we've been wrong. We have to agree with the Lord that our sin is sin. Number four, shame for sin. Number five, hatred of sin. And number six, finally, turning from sin. Quite simply, I'll never turn from sin that I don't hate. I'll never hate sin that I don't feel shame for. I'll never feel shame for sin that I've never confessed. I'll never confess sin that I don't have sorrow over. And I'll never feel sorrow for sin that I don't recognize. It's priority number one for Jesus. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the grace that drips from this message is that for the repentant, there is welcome. There's no other God who welcomes the repentant. Jesus doesn't say, get your act together, make up, make penance, make amends. He says, repent. Hate your sin, feel sorry for your sin, confess your sin, turn from your sin, and I will welcome you with grace. The light shines in the midst of the darkness through the proclamation of this message, repent. The light preaches. And we're not told how people respond. 
But what we are given in the very next passage is the idea that the light calls, much the same. We have Jesus calling his first disciples, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then shortly thereafter, verse 21, going on from there, he sees two other brothers, James and John, and he called them, and they followed him. Now the reason that this passage is so important for us this morning is that we have built the entire identity of our church around what we read here in this text. Because we have taken our mission statement of connecting people to Jesus, and we've given more meaning to it, we've fleshed it out by saying, as disciples, who make disciples? But the moment that we say that, it begs the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? Are you a disciple? And to say I'm a disciple means to say that I am a Christian. They're one and the same. You cannot be a Christian and not be a disciple. You cannot be a disciple and not be a Christian. So what does it mean to be a disciple? It's very simple in the text. I've got two F words for you. Easy. Two F words for you. Follow and fish. That's what it means to be a disciple. If I'm a Christian this morning, I do two things in relationship to Jesus. I follow and I fish. It's as plain as the nose on your face in the passage. What does Jesus say to the first two brothers in verse 19? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The first F is follow. I want you to notice the reaction, the response that all four brothers give to Jesus. They're characterized by one simple word, and that word is immediately. Immediately. The call from Jesus comes, follow me. Immediately, verse 20, they left their nets and followed him. Immediately, verse 22, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Immediately. Immediate response of following. You know, if you have kids in your life, as I do, a a little boy, six years old almost now, you'll know that kids have a knack for playing with a toy long enough to find something better, and they will ditch what they were playing with in no time to run after the thing that's more desirable. And isn't that the response of these brothers? But notice that they're not leaving behind a toy. They're leaving behind their livelihood. They're fishermen. They leave their boats. They leave their nets. They leave their family. James and John don't say, Dad, I'll be home before dinner. They just take off. Such is the power of the call of Jesus to his people to follow me. It means quite simply this morning that if Jesus is the one that you are following after, he is the most important thing in your life, bar none. There is no prerogative, no agenda that even competes with Christ. If I'm a follower of Jesus, when He says follow me, I get up immediately and follow Him. When I hear His gracious call to belong to Him, to follow Him, I cannot help but respond. I wonder if that's ever happened in your life. I can remember it vividly. 22 years old, Firestone Park, city of Akron, reading my Bible, friends in the family room, and going, oh my goodness, it looks like I'm going to be leaving some things behind. 
Looks like I'm going to have some different friends. Looks like I'm going to have a different lifestyle because Jesus just called my name with power and said, follow me. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus, to do as he says all the days of our lives. And when we get it wrong, to repent, to seek his forgiveness and to continue on following day after day after day. The first F of discipleship. What is a disciple? A disciple follows Jesus. And secondly, and so closely connected, a disciple fishes for men and women. You see what Jesus says? If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. I take that to mean, I think on the basis of the text, that I am calling you as I call you to follow me. I am calling you now to do the same thing in the lives of other people, calling them to follow me. That's what a disciple does. Now, loved ones, we have got to get this right because I think and I fear that sometimes in our framework of Christianity, Christianity is about me, about my best life now, and not about the kingdom of Christ expanding as disciples make disciples. Fishing for men and women. Proclaiming Christ to the people around us. That's what a disciple does. And we have to just take the text at face value and and own up to the fact that if you and I have no interest in fishing, no desire to see the people around us know Jesus, if we do not give to Christian mission, if we do not pray for conversions, if we will not open our mouths in obedience to the command of Jesus to fish for men and women, then we have every reason to pause and ask, am I following? Am I a disciple? Because disciples make disciples. I love what David Garland says in his commentary on this passage. He says, the task of mission that is central to the disciples' role in this gospel is introduced as soon as they are. The moment disciples are named, their mission is given. Go fish for men. Here in Galilee, the very place where you and I will eventually receive our marching orders as a church and as individuals. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's why we exist. That's why if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been converted or saved, that's why you exist. We follow after Jesus, we grow in our personal godliness, but we fish for men. And if we could just ride this metaphor out a little bit more, we have to come to grips with what the bait is. My other fear is that we don't even understand how to fish. Do not get me wrong. It is good and right to be active in our community. It is good and right to do good deeds in front of other people. It is good and right to talk to people about the Bible. It is good and right to build relationships with those who do not know Jesus. But, loved ones, if we never get to the place, the place that Rico Tice calls the pain barrier, where we actually prayerfully proclaim the name of Jesus to people who don't know Him, We're doing a lot of different things, but none of them are connecting people to Jesus. 
The gospel is the bait. And yes, there will be people who turn away. Whenever the light gets flicked on in a really, really dark environment, one of two things happens. Some people are attracted to the light. Others are repulsed by the light. But the light does its work nevertheless. Here in Matthew's Gospel, in our passage this morning, the light preaches, the light calls, and then finally and briefly, the light heals. We have Jesus calling His disciples. They go right away with Him. And then in verse 23, we have this summary statement of the ministry of Jesus. He went throughout all Galilee. What is He doing? He's teaching and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. And He's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's teaching. He's preaching. But the emphasis of Matthew in this section is that He's healing. Verse 24, His fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and people oppressed by demons, seizures, paralytics. And verse 24 tells us that what he does with these people is he healed them. What do we do with this? The healing ministry of Jesus and the earthly ministry of Jesus. We say what Matthew wants us to say, that the King has come. This is an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We're well aware in the United States of American history, and we know that D-Day won the war. The battle still raged on, but the decisive victory was won on D-Day. The war was already over, but it wasn't quite over just yet. And we could say the same thing about the kingdom of God. The kingdom comes with Jesus. The kingdom has already come, but it has not yet come in its fullness. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, the king unveils himself to the world and he commands people everywhere to repent. And he has the boldness to go to young fishermen and say, simply follow me, and they follow him. The question that's begged is, on what basis? Why would I follow you? How do I know that you're the king of kings and the Lord of lords? How do I know that you're the man who's born king of the Jews? And Jesus says very simply, let me show you. Isaiah chapter 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When? When the King comes. Here Jesus is underscoring and proving His authority over sin and darkness by healing and by casting out demons. It's a bit like in Mark chapter 2. You read the story where Jesus heals a man who's a paralytic. They bring him down on a mat through the roof of the house. And he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the people around him go, well, how could, how could he say you could, his sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, oh, you don't think I can forgive sins? Well, let me just show you. Excuse me, sir, take up your mat and walk. Why don't you walk yourself out of here? And the man does it. And the point is, Jesus is saying, if you doubt my authority to forgive sins, let me show you my authority by healing the sick so that you know if I can do this, then I can do that. Why would I follow this Jesus? Why would I come in, out of the darkness and into the light? As I see the shadowy figure of Jesus in the attic, staring out, inviting me in, why would I come in? And Matthew submits to us because he is the only one worth following. He is the one who has power over the kingdom of darkness. He is the one who brings the kingdom of heaven and its fullness. And one day, 
when our mission is complete, when having done all, and every tribe, tongue, and nation knows His name, then and only then will the real healing start. Then and only then will there be no more sickness, sadness, or death. But in the meantime, you and I have received our marching orders. We are to go. Go. Make disciples. And you know, I I just want to say to you this morning that this is really the only true way to be alive. I mean, some of you are here this morning and day in and day out, you get up, you brush your teeth, some of you shave, some of you even comb your hair, you go to work, you do your job, you clock in, you clock out, you come home, you turn on Netflix, you go to bed, you rinse and you repeat. What kind of miserable existence is that? You know it, I know it, there's no use hiding from it. So what gives us purpose in life? The only thing, loved ones, that gives us any purpose, any meaning in life is to receive the grace of this King, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven who says, follow me, is to respond to that call and then to go make disciples of other men and women, to fish for men and women, to take upon ourselves as our life's work, the Great Commission, make disciples. That's why we exist. That's what the whole thing's about. And the moment that we lose sight of this, Alice used to say it all the time, we'll be selling carpet out of this place in no time. So what are we really about? What unifying purpose can you and I as the members of First Baptist Church rally around? Making Jesus famous. Knowing Christ and making Him known. Following and fishing. And telling a lost and broken world that exists in the darkness outside of the kingdom of heaven that we have met a man who not only has power over the sick and over the demonic realm, but has power over sin itself. And will forgive every man, woman, boy, and girl who will repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's something worth getting up in the morning for. D.A. Carson will close with this as he talks about the healing ministry of Jesus. He says, In the New Testament, sickness may result directly from a particular sin or may not. But both Scripture and Jewish tradition take sickness as resulting directly or indirectly from living in a fallen world. The messianic age, the reign of the king, would end such grief. Therefore, Jesus' miracles dealing with every kind of ailment not only heralded the kingdom, but show that God has pledged himself to deal with sin at a basic level. We have the solution to the world's greatest problem. And if you will, Jesus has taken the light that first shone there in Galilee, and he has handed the torch to you and I to do the very same thing that Jesus did. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Will you join us? Let's pray. Lord, we hear the call of discipleship here in the words of your son. Think of Bonhoeffer that uh, said when Jesus calls a man or a woman to follow him, he bids them to come and die. To leave behind the old life, the old interests, the old pursuits, the old nine to five, the old 
purposeless wandering through this life to leave the darkness and enter into the light, to become a fisher of men and women as we follow after Jesus, growing in our relationship, our knowledge, our love for Jesus day in and day out. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that even as we talk about these things, we remind ourselves that you shone, you dawned in the darkest of places. That there's no one in this room this morning who's too steeped in darkness and sin, too far away from your kingdom to be brought near by that gracious call, follow me. And we thank you that you've demonstrated your power, your authority, your goodness, your kingship in healing disease and showing your reign over all of the created order so that we would look to no one other than you as being worthy of our following. Lord, would you make us as First Baptist Church a church that is committed in earnestness to connecting people to Jesus by being disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Or would you give us a greater urgency in prayer and giving and speaking to imitate the ministry of Jesus by pointing to him and saying, follow him. Lord, we pray that many would come to know and follow after you as a result of our ministry, both personal and corporate. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.